Thank you for choosing the podcast of East Haven Baptist Church in Brookhaven, Mississippi. For more information on the ministries of East Haven and to access videos and sermon notes from our services, visit www.easthaven.net. Good morning. It's good to see you this morning. I'm happy that you've chosen to be in this place as we gather to worship. Uh, How many of you are looking forward to the pastoral candidate announcement? Can I see those hands? For some reason, I feel like I ought to be Ryan Seacrest and we ought to dim the lights. You know what I mean? (laughs) Anybody with me? Or maybe I could hit the golden buzzer and went, oh my gosh, he's going right through to the live rounds. That is not my responsibility this morning, but we look forward to that a little later. And because I've got kind of a captive audience, you know, there are certain days that everybody makes sure that they're going to be in the house. And we're glad that you're here in whatever season of life you're in. Uh, But because we have a pretty full house this morning, I thought I would do about an hour and 14 minutes. I got a couple of songs. I got a lot of outlines. Uh, I think I could do that today. It has been such a thrill for me to be here. Let me say to those who are watching online or Facebook or radio or satellite transmission, whatever you're doing, people, this is an incredible group of people here at East Haven. And as much as is possible, we encourage you to be present. But if you can't be, thank you for being a part of what's happening here on Sunday morning. My name is Gary Mays, and it's been my privilege for the last several months to serve as the interim pastor here, and uh, just an incredibly easy group of people to love. I told Kenny Goza this morning, you know, I say that, I mean that. Uh, Easy to love, and you've been so gracious in so many ways. It's just been a privilege. And uh, whoever this guy is is coming to be your pastor, I'm going to try to persuade him to wait until June or July to arrive, because I got things to do here. I got some outlines in the other half of the book of Romans, so we're going to be here for a while. If you have your Bible, pull it out. Would you join me in Romans 8 yet again? Uh, We're going to talk about a pretty thorny subject. It's really pretty hard, and uh, it's a difficult passage that we were moving into in Romans 9. So I've backed up to find a verse uh, or set of verses in Romans 8. And remember, it's one continuous letter. We read it in chapters with really somewhat artificial markings and, uh, and chapter and verses, but it was a, a linear letter to the church at Rome. And I've backed up to Romans 8 uh, to find a passage that I really believe as I look at this expanse of God's Word summarizes some of this difficult situation we're going to talk about this morning. I want to back up for a moment because I'm a compulsive communicator and I I live in the real world. I haven't been able to be here every Sunday myself and I know most of you haven't. So allow me for just a moment to sort of, in some way, bring us up to speed about what we've talked about and what God's Word brings to us in the book of Romans. Paul's writing Romans. Paul's a trained Jewish rabbi, comes to Christ, as you, most of you know the story. Paul writes to Rome. Rome is the significant center of Western civilization. The Roman Empire literally uh, owns, commands, controls much of the Western world. God, in his timing, brings uh, Jesus at really at just the right time. And in this context of the Roman Empire, Paul 
finds himself writing to the church at Rome. And the church at Rome wasn't a building, not the first church at Rome, but the church at Rome, the gathered ones, the body of Christ at Rome. And here's what he says, I long to to be with you, I long to come to you, but then he writes these theological truths. And the book of Romans has been called the strongest theological book in the Bible. Well, that may seem funny because it's all theological, really. But the book of Romans has a lot of doctrine. And let me do an aside for those of us who grew up a little cynical about the academic side. The reason doctrine is important, the study of God is important, theology is important, is is because literally whatever you call it and whether you consider it academic or not, what you know from God's word and how you apply it to your life changes the way you live your life. It changes what you know about God, which changes the way you think about God, which should change the behavior in which you live that God can honor for his glory. So what we think about God and what we understand about his character and his redemption in our life and his presence and leading in our life through the very presence of the Holy Spirit, that's pretty important stuff. And Paul writes this deeply theological uh, treatise called, for us, the book of or the letter of Paul to the church at Rome or the book of Romans. Here's the, the highest of the high points here. Paul says, everybody is without excuse that God has made his... Uh, divine nature and attributes evident to man, but man has rejected that and essentially gone his own way. And when we move into chapters 2 and 3, Paul reminds us that for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We know that. But God's plan is to redeem us. It is to forgive us. It is to buy us back in essence. God has a plan to bring his people into relationship with him. And it's at a great cost. It's the expression of God giving us and demonstrating to us his mercy, setting aside the penalty of sin for each of us, and bringing to us grace, a gift we don't deserve, which is a relationship with Christ. And then Paul describes the struggle, and the struggle is real. You can love Jesus and still be an idiot. That's a deep theological phrase right there. But that's the truth. You can love Jesus and still be an idiot. You can make bad decisions. You can willfully sin. I hate to say that. Paul hated to say it. But in that struggle that he depicts in 6 and 7, he's essentially saying, man, I still struggle. And the things I don't want to do, I find myself doing. Have you ever had that experience? If I asked for a show of hands, and I'm not, and your hand didn't go up, you'd be a liar. You'd be doing exactly what I'm asking about because we all struggle, because God is at work in us to conform us to the image of Christ. Romans 8 has been called the greatest chapter in scriptures we talked about last week, and that's a high view of Romans 8, but Romans 8 is this incredible turn in the story and the narrative of the book of Romans that reminds us that God doesn't hold our sin against us. There is therefore, Romans 8, 1 says, there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ. And that's unbelievably good news. I mean, that is incredibly good news. And then he walks through in Romans 8 what it means to live in the Spirit. He describes to us what our future is. 
He said, we don't have a spirit of fear, but we receive the spirit of God who is our father. And it's a response of Abba, Father. It's a warm, intimate response to the reality that we become sons and daughters, adopted sons and daughters of the father. This is right on the edge of heresy. This is the very kind of theological kingdom of God, kingdom of man, Messiah coming message that Jesus presented about the Father and the very sense of commonality and intimacy with the Father was the kind of thing that the religious people just recoiled from. But that's the good news of the gospel. There's no condemnation for you and for me if we're in Christ and we become adopted children of the Father. And then we have the confidence that he's at work in all things. We live in a broken, fallen world, and we live in what Paul at one point says is tense. These tents, these bodies break down, bad things happen, uh, even creation groans for the Savior to right all things. And Paul writes and says in Romans 8, 28, he says, and we know that in all things God works for the good for those who love him and are called according to his purpose. And then this morning, we'll be thinking about these verses as well in 828 through 30. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the likeness of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. This morning, my intention was to move to Romans 9. Romans 9 is a really complex chapter, and it deals with some issues that are really hard to comprehend, quite frankly. It requires some, uh, some context of Old Testament. It requires an understanding that Paul has already built a case for, for Jews and Gentiles alike to be favored by God in the sense that they are uh, recipients of the Messiah's grace and presence. And that was quite the story for these people in this time. And it's still, of course, the good news for us. Romans 9 is really a uh, kind of a thorny chapter too because the concept of what God does and knows has divided churches and denominations and people forever. I mean, I'm talking about for two millennia now, people have been divided over this understanding of who God is, what his character's like in the sense of his leadership in this word predestination or election or foreknowledge. So I want to talk about that briefly this morning, and here's the point. I'm going to give you the point now, and then I'm going to illustrate it for just a few moments. Here's the point. God's in control, and it's for his glory. And if you think you've got exactly how God's foreknowledge and predestination works, I'd like to see you a little later because you're awesome because uh, people a whole lot stronger probably than you and me and the seven people around you put together have struggled with this as a focus of biblical study for the last 2,000 years. And there is still a bit of a conundrum almost an oxymoron of theological implication. And what I find, and I'm giving away the story first for you to sort of marinate in this as we walk through the scripture, what I find is that the transcendence of God and the wisdom of God and the sovereignty of God is way too big for me to understand, let alone understand and explain. 
And I've been in these situations for years as a pastor and as a teacher, as a student pastor, even in the college setting, that uh, I've told people as they teach, it's almost impossible to make things simple if you don't understand them. Anybody know what I'm talking about? If you don't understand them, the, the explanation, the teaching, the discourse typically becomes really complicated because you're struggling to put into words things you really don't fundamentally understand. Uh, some of us have these thoughts about our spouse. I said that just to see if you're paying attention. You know, sometimes it's like, I hear you, but I'm not sure you understand that. I, I, people say that to me all the time. There is a certain, there's a certain, certain level of understanding that must be present in order to break something down into its simplest components. And the challenge with God's sovereignty is his sovereignty and the dimension of God's leadership and control and pre-knowledge, predestination in our life is a concept that's way beyond us. It's a transcendent concept. It's about God. And it's for his glory, and we want to rest in that today. Let me describe a couple of camps here as we go to the Scripture. There are really two sides of this. And there are denominations that tend to be attached to uh, one theological camp about this or the other. And there are theological convictions that attend those things. As Baptists, I grew up hearing the phrase, once saved. I grew up hearing that. By the way, I agree with that. I think a better interpretation of that that I've heard in recent decades is, if saved, always saved. If saved, always saved. But I'm here to tell you that there are some people who don't believe that, and they're not necessarily biblically illiterate. They land on a different emphasis of some scripture and some of the really hard narratives, not just maybe here, but in the book of Hebrews, for instance. I say, if saved, always saved now. There are some who don't. And there are some who believe about election or predestination or God's determination of your life, his sovereignty in your life, a number of things along a continuum. And we're going to talk about kind of the two sides of that. Denominations, you know, if I, if I talk about predestination because it's right here in Romans and it's in Ephesians and a number of Paul's writings, you know, the, a casual observer with some theological background might assume that I'm reformed in my theology. If you know what that is, you're with me. If you don't, don't worry about it this morning. Or that I'm Presbyterian by denominational loyalty, and I'm not. Or that I'm a Reformed Baptist, which is kind of in the Calvinist, John Calvin school of, of theological framework. And uh, that would be okay. I'm here to tell you, I'm not a Calvinist, but John Calvin and John Wesley could sit down, argue together scriptural truth, make the assumption that both of them are godly men and walk away on different sides of the argument. And as a people of God and as an interim pastor who will be out of here soon, and I'm really grateful for that because if I say something crazy today, I eventually leave. So don't flatten my tires, okay? Please be kind to me. But I'm here to tell you we would be well advised to be people of grace about the non-essentials that people believe based on perfectly good scriptural scholarship about a God 
for whom, and this is not a cop-out, for whom we're not going to have ultimate understanding. Do you get this? I, I can't... I can't fix my cell phone. Why do I think I understand the total sovereignty of God? And we've got to gain some perspective about the fact that God has revealed himself and his character, his redemptive plan, and he's given us the truth of his word. But he hasn't given us all that's true about the creator of the universe. So again, if you understand the sovereignty of God completely, if you could come and let me know about that. And maybe tell me where the edges of the universe are and how he created the world and how the eye works. That would be fascinating. This is no put down. It is no, oh my goodness, we're not smart enough. But it is biblically, oh my goodness, we're not smart enough. We've got to rest in the sovereignty and the grace of God. All the while looking at, looking at and elevating the value of his word as he describes his character This morning, these verses that I just read, I want to read again, and I want you to hear the words of Romans 8, 28 through 30. Listen carefully. And we know that in all things, God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Let's let's put this up here. I'm, I'm in my version, but let's go here. That have been called according to his purpose. Next verse, please, sir. For those God foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his son, that he might be the firstborn among many brothers and sisters. And those he predestined, he also called. And those he called, he also justified. And those he justified, he also glorified. God has this incredible picture of how he and his sovereignty, his absolute rulership, his absolute knowledge creates for us and in us his will. He predestined. He foreknew. He called. He justified. He glorified. There's a process there It's linear in our scripture. I'm not sure that it doesn't happen at one time for the praise of his glory. But he's got this plan and God is in control. What we tend to speak about is that all things work together for good to those who love him or are called according to his purpose. But he also foreknew and predestined. It's there. I'm not 100% sure what that means, but it's right there. So typically, people land on a couple of sides of this, and I want to give those to you for just a moment. Here are two views. Here's number one. And if you've got the notes this morning as you walked in, it's before you. Two views. Number one, foreknowledge, remember he just said foreknew, of who will respond in faith and who will not. Who will respond in faith and who will not. First Timothy, the second chapter, verses three and four. Paul, again, is writing, and he's explaining some of this truth to Timothy, his protege, about doing ministry and presenting and bringing the gospel. And he says, this is good and pleases God, our Savior, who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. 
Let me do that again. This is good and pleases God our Savior who wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. God wants all men to be saved and to come to a knowledge of the truth. I think about one of the most oft-quoted verses in the Bible, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever, whosoever, whosoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. Whosoever will. God has a heart that all men would know him. So there's an understanding that God has a foreknowledge. He foreknew. And the, the, the presentation, I, I hate to say argument because in our culture, that means you stand opposed to somebody. But the, the argument is that God foreknows. He is not limited by time. He's not in a linear timeline. He knows what we're going to do. So because he knows, he knows. He foreknew, and because he knows what we're going to do, because we are people of volition, that is willful choice, God foreknows that, and then he wants to place into us this, this process of work by the Holy Spirit that ends up glorifying him and us being glorified in the sense that we have the very living God and living inside of us, and he wants to be glorified in that. Because he foreknows what is going to happen, because he's not limited by time, he's not taking away man's volition or will, he just knows. We have a three and a half year old granddaughter named Stella. There's a technical term for the season that Stella is in at three and a half, she's a piece of work. She is a wild little woman. And if we were to offer Stella Chinese food or a cookie, what's she going to choose? With all due respect to my Chinese friends everywhere, she's going for the cookie. Now, I'm not sovereign in any stretch of the imagination. She's got free will in the, that choice, perhaps, but I know exactly what she's going to choose. Can I get an amen? Now, that is a very, very, very elementary, very simple, arguably simplistic illustration. But that is somewhat at the core of this. God isn't even limited by time. He knows exactly who we're going to choose and who we're going to faith and how we're going to live because he sees it. He's been there. He has seen our life. He foreknew us. He even sees us in the past. He's limited not by time. The second theory, your notes today, is that God's knowledge is an unconditional choice. God's knowledge as an unconditional choice. In other words, God determines who will be saved. Now, Romans 9 takes us into some of that, and I didn't set that up with the media this morning. So we'll go to Ephesians 2, 1 through 10. And here is kind of the beginning of this in Reformed theology, and, and I, I get it. Uh, and I think I 
I would sign on to this. Man has total depravity outside of Christ. We are dead in our sin. We are dead in our transgressions. And the kind of common phrase that I have used and you'll hear preachers use and you may have used yourself is, Jesus did not come to make bad people good. He came to make dead people alive. We're dead in our transgressions, but he makes us alive when we're in Christ. So the second chapter of Ephesians, as for you, now he's talking to the church at Ephesus, but he's talking to us, East Haven. As for you and me, we were dead in our transgressions and sins in which we used to live when we followed the ways of the world and of the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. We're dead. We're like everybody else who's dead in our sins. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. Verse 4, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God seated us with Christ, um, excuse me, and God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith. And this not from yourselves, it is the gift of God, not by works so that no man can boast. For we were God's workmanship created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. This is one passage of many that suggests that God in advance makes preparations for people who are dead in their sin. And the argument, the position here is this. You who are dead in your sin, you're dead. You're dead. You can't do anything to trigger God's grace because you're dead. It is God who gives you grace and mercy out of his kindness for us. It's not us reading or reciting or repeating a prayer. We're not triggering God's grace. God is the author, the argument goes, and I can land here as well. God is the author of that moment. Even our salvation is about God and his mercy. So the question kind of presents itself. So are we culpable? Are we responsible for our behavior? Yes, we are. Why? We're dead in our sins. We're alive in the body, arguably, but we're dead in our sin, and our sin is a part of our nature, and we're responsible for our nature. That's who we are. We are dead sinners apart from Christ. Some of you may well remember several weeks ago, I repeated a story, I believe, that my son had preached, and it was a great story. He talked about he and his wife, and they were in these rushing waters and rapids, and there were rocks everywhere, and, 
and he had a little kayak and she got trapped on the rock and she's bleeding and they're down off a craggy cliff in Puerto Rico. You remember the story? And uh, the kind of funny line was, she's saying, back the kayak up. And Josh is like, this is not a Cressida. It's, it's not an Altima. It's a kayak. And she wants him to back up and the waves are slapping the kayak around. And, and finally, she gets in the kayak and they get back. They're safe. And Josh's point was, many times as believers... We believe God rescues us and takes us to a place of safety. But Josh's illustration, which is so apropos, is that's a misunderstanding. We're not on a rock, a little bloody, needing a hand up. We're dead on the bottom of the ocean floor. No life, no oxygen, no future, and no hope outside of God's rescue to bring to us life. And those who see God as the central figure in repentance and faith because we're dead in our transgressions, our Reformed friends call that total depravity, there's nothing good that we can do on our own, do not see us speaking something or even praying something and activating God's grace. There is a surrender of the heart. There is a faithing. But it is a heart matter of responding to the grace of God. And he already knows, and I believe he does already know, who's going to do that. And they would suggest, and he orchestrates that. And I think, oh my goodness, that that diminishes responsibility. That's the way we typically think about this, because it's just God. And it turns out that the scripture is very, very, very challenging about this. Romans 9 just a couple of thoughts. Romans 9, 14 through 18, if I might. Just listen, please. Paul's making this argument to Jews and Gentiles alike that God does what he does to his people, covenant or the Gentiles. And he says, um, what then shall we say? Is God unjust? Not at all. For he says to Moses, now listen to this, I will have mercy on whom I have mercy And I will have compassion on whom I have compassion. It does not, therefore, depend on man's desire or effort, but on God's mercy. For the scripture says to Pharaoh, I raised you up for this very purpose, that I might display my power in you, and that my name might be proclaimed in all the earth. Therefore, God has mercy on whom he wants to have mercy, and he hardens whom he wants to harden. If that makes you uncomfortable, welcome to the human race. Because we are inadequate to hold on to, to create, to trigger God's grace and mercy for ourselves. It's all about God. It's all about God. It's all about Him. It's about His kindness and His grace and His mercy. It is not about me trying hard to be a Christian. It is about the work of God in our life. Now, so you know, churches get divided over this. And some pastors preach some nuances of these doctrines with such confidence that it becomes, um, it becomes sort of a lightning rod for people in the congregation. And I'm going to pray in the future, we'll talk about that in a few moments, but I'm going to pray in the future that we have the kind of depth of wisdom and leadership here that you don't ever let the non-essential understandings of the big transcendent truths about God ever divide you. 
that you love him with all that you have and you love each other as you love yourself and that you're the gathered ones in the body of Christ. There are a lot of doctrines that have interesting and different interpretations, most of whom have some scriptural basis. But scriptural interpretation has to be done in the totality of the book, not just a few verses here and there. So this morning, because we've been in Romans, and Romans 9 is so so complicated and so thorny, I wanted to make sure we had a foundation for these two sides of God's election and sovereignty, his predestination in all of our lives. The one side, which is, there's a foreknowledge and of those who will respond in faith, so he knows, not limited by time. And then there's God's foreknowledge is an unconditional choice. We're we're moved to make the decision to trust and follow Christ because that's God's choosing who he will have compassion on and who he will harden. Both views land on the grace of God for his glory. Both views land on the grace of God for his glory. Ephesians, the first chapter, is one of my favorite passages. And Ephesians 1, 3 through 14 Listen to this. It is, it's just great. Do we have this? Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ who has blessed us in the heavenly realms with every spiritual blessing in Christ. For he chose us in him before the creation of the world. Did you read that? He chose us in him before the creation of the world to be holy and blameless in his sight. In love, he predestined us for adoption to sonship through Jesus Christ in accordance with his pleasure and will to the praise of his glorious grace, which he has freely given us in the one he loves. In him, we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of sins in accordance with the riches of God's grace that he lavished on us with all wisdom and understanding he made known to us the mystery of his will according to his good pleasure which he purposed in Christ to be put into effect when the times reach their fulfillment to bring unity to all things in heaven and on earth under Christ. There's a lot of choosing and election in the scripture from the Father. God is a sovereign God. He's bigger than we think he is. And you can study your Bible and spend a lifetime in God's word. And he's still bigger than your knowledge of who he is. He's bigger than that. I work at French Camp Academy, as many of you who've been around know. Uh, It's one of the assignments of my life. Never saw that coming. French Camp is non-denominational. But it was Presbyterian officially for almost 100 years. So let me just wink at you and say, it's Presbyterian. They don't admit it, but it's, it's pretty Presbyterian. That's the core of their relationships. Reform Seminary, that is the, the seminary for Presbyterians, conservative Presbyterians. Reform Seminary began 20 feet from my office in 1970. They're pretty Presbyterian. But Sam Patterson, the president of French camp, who had much to do with the beginnings of Reformed Seminary, uh, 
There's a biography of Sam Patterson, and it quotes Sam, who said, I believe when we get to heaven, God's not going to be nearly as reformed as we think he is. I have a feeling, call it a conviction, that God is not going to be nearly as limited by our theological construction as we think he should be. That he is the sovereign God of the universe and he's expressed to us, demonstrated to us grace and mercy and love to us little bitty, although valuable people that he died for. We're not the mind of the universe. We're an expression of his grace and his love. Handle the relationship with your brothers and sisters gently, gently, especially in the non-essentials. For those of you who are younger or maybe you find yourself seeing theological discussions in places like Facebook, just step away from the fight. Be gracious. Let's make sure that what we do is for, in the words of Ephesians 1, 1 through 10, for the praise of his glory alone. I believe the scripture really is clear that God loves the world and whosoever will may come to him. That God's heart is for everyone to be saved. If you don't have a relationship with Christ, you should. You should respond to his grace and his love. The Bible tells us as we visited earlier in Romans, uh, it is his kindness that leads us to repentance. He loves us. And I can't think of a better thing to do than to put your heart and your faith and your life into the life of Christ and him and you. If you'd like to know more, perhaps you'd pray to receive Christ this morning. Uh, I would love to visit with you at the front or others who are prepared to visit with you. If you want to uh, come to be a part of East Haven Baptist Church and to examine more of what that means, there are those who would love to visit with you this morning. Uh, We're going to sing in just a couple of moments. Before we do, let me encourage you, if you've not ever prayed to receive Christ, it's not a prayer that you pray that triggers God's grace. It's God's grace and his movement in your heart that you respond to in faith. And I'll not pray a prayer for you to repeat, but I'll give you what I believe with much honor and scriptural basis this is. It's a recognition that, God, I'm a sinner. Scripture says, in that while we're sinners, Christ died for us. Chapter 10 of Romans says, and those that call upon the Lord will be saved. Those who call upon the Lord will be saved. So a prayer that might say in your heart and mind, God hears you, by the way. God I need you. I'm a sinner, and I'm thankful for your kindness and your mercy and your grace. Save me. Hold me. Thank you for making me a son or a daughter of yours. And a response to that is obedience. It's God, because of your love for me, I want to obey you and grow in you and honor you as my heavenly father. We're thankful for Jesus, who did not consider equality with God a thing to be held on to, but was obedient to the Father all the way to the cross on your behalf and mine. So if I can meet you at the front during our time of invitation, pray with you, encourage you. If there's something going on in your life and you want somebody to hear you and, and 
make sure that you know that you've been seen and heard and prayed for, we would be honored to do that. If you're a part of another church somewhere and you believe God's leadership is for you to be a part of the East Haven family, we'd be thrilled to, to meet with you this morning and begin to examine that relationship. So we're going to pray together. We're going to sing together. We're going to have our invitation, and then we're going to invite you to be seated, and we have an important announcement. Allow me to pray for us, please. Bow your heads. Father, I'm grateful for your grace. I'm grateful that you love us the way you do. And my prayer this morning is for obedience for each of us that we would respond with what you've called us to do. Father, if that's giving our life to you, I pray that that would be the bold decision of our heart by your prompting and your strength this morning. If it's to unite with this part of the body of Christ that is East Haven, I pray you would give uh, these individuals or these families clear guidance and courage to make just the decision you've called them to make. Father, I pray every person in this room going through sometimes unimaginable difficulties, God, I pray they would know that they've been seen and loved and heard and prayed for. They'd have an awareness and a confidence in your love for them. So, Father, have your way in our time together. We're so thankful for your goodness, your kindness, and your grace. And we're thankful that you do that, even being a holy and righteous God. God, I, sir, I've said it often, but when we understand your grace, who couldn't love you? Help us to be obedient in this moment, we pray in Christ's name. Amen. If God's leading, you come. I'll meet you at the front or with others for any of these decisions or anything else that you might need encouragement and prayer for. Let's stand together as we continue to worship.